gospel or the message and the uh, work to do ahead is. So let's get into it here. We've talked about Passover at the beginning of Leviticus 23. Uh, and then uh, during the Passover, uh, on at the day after the weekly Sabbath during that, uh, they were to wave a sheaf of the first fruits of the harvest to the priest, down in verse 10. And we're going to see that this sheaf represents the first fruits. Now, you and I connect the first fruits in Revelation 14 with the 144,000 because it says there very clearly, uh, I think it's verse 7, maybe it's 8, that these are the first fruits, speaking of the 144,000. So, all of these things in the Old Testament, as we well know, were written for us upon whom the ends of the world have come. So this is a forward-looking prophecy speaking of today, speaking of the first fruits as they are today being formed. Uh, a few were being formed even way back then with some of the patriarchs, as they are certainly included in Hebrews 11 as part of the first fruits, and that they, we would not be resurrected or raised without them being there. So it's very clear that it represents all the way back into the Old Testament for a very few, but most of it in the New Testament. The first, uh, the, the church that began uh, through Christ on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, and then which barely survived until the end, and God raised somebody up to do a great calling here in the end time, which has been done, it's now history, and we move forward. But during those days of unleavened bread, that sheaf that was waved represented the first fruits. Now, back then, all they thought of was the physical harvest. The harvest was ready. They got a sheaf of it and waved it. And to them, it just meant bounteous harvest because the terms of the Old Covenant were physical blessings. Not spiritual blessings. Had nothing to do with the Holy Spirit. But at the same time, God had something else bigger in mind for later on. So he had it represent the first fruits of the spiritual harvest, as is very clear in the New Testament. In verse 11, he shall wave the sheaf before the eternal to be accepted for you. On the morrow after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. Now, it should be clear in the context that this isn't speaking of the first holy day of unleavened bread, the 14th, or the 21st, the last holy day of unleavened bread, but the weekly Sabbath, because starting the next day they were to count seven Sabbaths. So it had to have been a weekly Sabbath to start with in order for the next day to count seven consecutive Sabbaths. And then the 50th day, the day after, again a Sunday, would be Pentecost. So, this sheaf of the first fruits is pointing toward 50 days later in the symbolism that then would be. You start the count because the count has to do with the first fruits. Okay? He, he tells you right there that the reason you're counting this 
is for what is to come in 50 days. So he makes it very clear that how that count is to be made. Let's go down to verse 15. And you shall count to you from the morrow after the Sabbath. Uh, seven Sabbaths shall be complete. That's 49 days from the day they start counting after the weekly Sabbath during unleavened bread. Even to the morrow, the next day, after the seventh Sabbath, shall you number 50 days. Now, it can't be 51 days. That means nothing in the Bible. 50 means a lot. 50 was the year of Jubilee. 7 times 7 is 49 years, and the 50th year was the Jubilee. Now, God's Spirit gives us freedom and liberty, does it not, according to Paul in the New Testament. And they got freedom and liberty in the 50th year, not the 51st year. So the biblical symbolism makes it very clear, apart from a Hebrew word, uh, which was the conundrum for years, uh, whether you count uh, outside of or within. Uh, the symbolism of the whole Bible makes it clear that it had to be the 50th day, which would have been a Sunday. So we're doing it right. Now, verse 17, You shall bring out of your habitations two wave loaves of two tense deals. They shall be of fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven. They are the first fruits to the eternal. So you wave the sheaf. Fifty days later, you got these two loaves of bread, which represented the first fruits. So that ties the beginning of this with the sheaf waved during the days of unleavened bread immediately with Pentecost. Two loaves of bread with fine flour, not coarse. These are to be loaves made of fine character, of that which is beaten down fine and uh, does not have great big lumps in it that uh, you crack your teeth on. <laughs> this is to be fine flour, even as we are to be a fine, a good, a perfect offering before God. Because these two wave loaves represent the first fruits. Now, 50 days before, we would have been keeping the Feast of Unleavened Bread using unleavened bread, because during those days, leaven represented sin. And leaven will move throughout an entire loaf if introduced to it. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5 that we are to uh, get the leaven out lest we all be leavened with sin. So the key to leavening is that it spreads throughout whatever it is in and causes it, when it represents sin, to represent ego, vanity, Self, uh, idolatry, which is worship of the self instead of God. I think I said yesterday 
I don't know if I said it in the sermon, but someone anyway, that idolatry is the commonest sin of all the sins that are committed. It's the first one. And putting something ahead of God, or usually ourselves, and our human desires ahead of God, is the commonest thing that is done on this earth. I mean, the other ones represent specific sins or specific desires of the flesh you might put before God, your own self ahead of your parents, your own self ahead of someone else's property or whatever, your covetousness ahead of someone else of, ahead of someone else's property. All those have to do with a specific thing in that way, but every one of them has to do with putting something ahead of God. And we do that daily and continually, putting something ahead of God, and that is idolatry. So we are to put all forms of idolatry away. So we are to be fine flour, and we are to have leavening at Pentecost spread throughout us. It's an anathema 50 days before. It's a good thing 50 days later. Notice Matthew 13. Matthew 13. And verse 33. Another parable spoke he to them. The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leavened. The kingdom of God is represented as leaven spreading throughout the entire loaf or throughout the entire world. So sin can spread as one use of leaven, and puff us up for idolatry and self-worship. Or, in another context, leaven can be the very best thing that there is. Because it represents peace and wholeness and the love of God spreading throughout the entire world and universe. So there could be nothing better than good leaven, or leaven used in a good way, as opposed to sin spreading, truth and peace and love is spreading. So it just depends on what context you're talking about. Do we not want the leaven of the kingdom throughout the universe? Man's sins, man's nature changed. Satan bound so that he can no longer spread sin. And peace everywhere. So this wave loaf represents the kingdom of God spread throughout. And baked with leaven, they are the first fruits to the eternal. So here he is speaking again of the end time. Let's understand that completely. 
Revelation 7 and 14 talk of the 144,000 who are the first fruits to the eternal. And what will they be used to do? They will be used to help spread the gospel of Christ to the whole world in the millennium. They will help leaven the world with the kingdom of God. So the symbolism here was not just of a good harvest for physical Israelites, but it was for the first fruits to spread, spread the word of God and the love of God to everyone who remained on earth after everything is done. Now, you shall offer with the bread seven lambs without blemish of the first year. Now, with that also comes a bullock and two rams. Uh, I don't know for sure what the bullock and the two rams uh, were, except that up here Aaron was to offer uh, a bullock and so on for himself and his family. Uh, was that here or was that over in... Uh, Leviticus 16 with the, uh, with the goats there. We'll get to it. Anyway, I think it should be obvious that the seven lambs here could represent, since we're in the context of the first fruits, the seven churches of Revelation. Uh, because they are all lambs of God, and some are not acting like lambs, and therefore all of us uh, had to be scattered and spread out and what does separating lambs and a flock of sheep do? It makes them vulnerable to wolves, to coyotes, to any kind of predator or man. And they can be killed and scattered and torn, which is what happened to the church. So the first fruits may be represented by these seven lambs or seven church eras existing here at the end. They were nose to tail through history, but they're also here at the end because in Zechariah 3, the rock, Christ, has the eyes of the seven angels of the seven churches focused on him who will do signs and wonders among the first fruits. So the seven lambs here could very easily represent, in the end time fulfillment, the seven churches. And they were to be what? Offerings made by fire of sweet savor to the eternal. Now, most of what goes up to God right now is a stench in his nostrils from this earth. And he called us out to be first fruits, to be made with fine flour, and to be a savor to his nose, a sweet-smelling savor to his nose. And then we became ourselves a stench, so he scattered the flock and let it be torn by all kind of predator. Now, let's go on. Verse 19, then you shall sacrifice one kid of the goats for a sin offering, 
and two lambs of the first year for a sacrifice of peace offerings. Now, the bullock, the two rams up there, may have been a part of that which normally they offered on all the holy days. As you read through, you'll see that there were certain ones offered uh, for them and for their families and whatever uh, God said at each particular one. But he adds something to it here with these seven lambs that were to be not only fine flour, but without blemish. We're to be preparing ourselves to present ourselves in the holy wedding garments without spot or blemish. That's what, isn't it, Peter, who says that we're to be offered to God without spot or blemish. So he brings this into the New Testament. Was it James or Peter? I think it was Peter. I won't look it up, but... uh, We are to be without spot or blemish of the world, to be pure, to be holy. As we read, I think, yesterday, we are to be, in, or maybe it was the week before, the perfection of holiness there in 2 Corinthians. The perfection, that is, without spot or blemish. Now, you and I are not going to achieve that here, striving to overcome on our own. What spots us? What blemishes us? Sin. What removes spots and blemishes? The blood of Christ. Now, the blood of Christ is mentioned here, as we shall see. You may not have recognized it before, but I think I can show it to you. We are to become holy, fine flour, a sweet savor, without blemish, perfected in holiness, presented as the bride of Christ. We have to be perfectly clean. He is going to have to make up the difference by removing all sin from us and transforming us into beings who can no longer sin, who no longer even desire to sin, who are not even tempted to sin so that it becomes foreign to our nature. Our whole nature will be changed from physical to spirit, 1 Corinthians 15. No longer be human. No longer be like we are. Wouldn't it be nice to be free from that? Now, when he says that he gives us freedom and liberty in the New Testament, he's not telling us we're free and at liberty to break his laws. No, he's telling us that we have the freedom of God's Spirit to follow His way and ultimately be changed into God so that we are free from sin, so that we are free from temptation. You know what changed me today? You know what changed you? Your human nature that makes you want to satisfy whatever you desire to do. You are chained to that human nature, and you can't get rid of it. It's like a ball and chain around your leg. You don't have the key. But the Spirit of God gives us the power to begin to overcome that human nature, a little at a time, and overcome sin, 
so that we can become more like God and think more like Him through His Spirit. Because the human spirit, the human nature, is deceitful, desperately wicked, and opposed to God in every way. So we have the liberty to have our sins forgiven. Ah, what a relief and a freedom that is through His blood, and then begin to work as a new creature toward becoming totally new when we're transformed. So the grace, the forgiveness of God, is what gives us liberty from the penalty of death that is behind us now. And our liberty is to move forward toward the kingdom of God, not any longer chained to this world, but loosed from the world to go after God. What makes a slave? Something that chains them to an owner, and they have to do everything that owner says. We were chained to Satan and the world, and we did everything Satan and the world said. Then, through baptism and the Holy Spirit, that ball and chain was unlocked, and now we are able to move away from the world. But the only big problem is, we don't know how to handle our freedom, and so we tend to stay in the world and don't use that liberty to move from the world toward God. At least not at the speed that we could or should be able to, because we still have the ball and chain of human nature. We may have been liberated from the ways of the world and Satan, but until we're liberated from this flesh, we will still have problems, always and until. But he's telling us here the fruit, first fruits need to be a sweet, a sweet savor because that's what the context is, is the first fruits. Now, verse 19 gets really interesting. Then you shall sacrifice one kid of the goats for a sin offering. Do you realize that Christ is represented in the Bible as a goat? That sounds strange to see or say. We think of Christ as the Lamb of God. We think of Him as a shepherd of the sheep. So it all has to do with sheep. But we've read Exodus 12:5, and I'm about to again. He tells them, verse 3, to take to them every man a lamb according to the house of their fathers, a lamb uh, for a house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him his neighbor and his neighbor take next to his house, take it according to the number of the souls, uh, so you have the proper amount to eat. Verse 5, Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats. It was legal. For them to sacrifice a goat at the Passover representing Christ. 
Do we get that? That was the instruction. A sheep or a goat. Now, consider Leviticus 16. Now, here are the two goats that Aaron was to bring, which we sometimes read on atonement because this was done at atonement. And he was to wash himself and clean himself up in verse 4 and take two kids of the goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Now, all hands on deck will say that one of these goats represented Christ. Some say both goats represented Christ. Herbert Armstrong and I believe one represented Christ and one represented Satan. But apart from that argument, everybody has accepted that one of these represented Christ. So, according to Exodus 12:5, you could use a goat as a sacrificial Passover lamb, lamb meaning a young first-year animal, that could be a sheep or a goat representing Christ. We don't think that way. I don't remember anybody saying, well, why don't we go buy some goat meat for Passover this year? Instead of beef, they'll say maybe we should have some lamb. But I've never, ever heard anybody say, let's go get a goat and kill it for Passover. But it's quite legal. Because that goat can represent Christ just as much as the sheep can. Leviticus 16 indicates that at least one of these lambs or kids represented Christ. We've been over that many, many times. So, let's go back then to chapter 23 of Leviticus in verse 19. You shall sacrifice one kid of the goats for a sin offering. I think I can show you that this goat represents Christ. A sin offering. He did not use a lamb of the sheep in this case, but he specifies a goat, just like we saw in Leviticus 16, where he specified two goats. Now, there's symbolism in the Bible both ways. Just as leaven can represent sin spreading through a whole congregation, leaven most of the time represents the kingdom of God spreading throughout the entire world. So it can have different meanings depending on when you're talking about. And with the lamb of the sheep and the lamb or the kid of the goats, it's the same way. It depends on what you are trying to get across at the moment. Here, he wanted this to be a goat for a sin offering, and two lambs of the first year for a sacrifice of peace offering. So what do we have in verse 19? We have a sacrifice that represents the removal of sin. What is the penalty of sin? It is death. Then we have two lambs 
And these would have been lambs of the sheep, not of the goat, or it would have specified again two goats. So it obviously is representing a sacrifice of lambs for a peace offering. Now, if you've been around sheep and goats, and I've been around both, you will see that goats tend more toward warfare among themselves than do sheep. Now, sheep will butt heads at times, and they have their pecking order to figure out in a, in a flock of sheep. But goats butt heads any and every day, and sometimes nearly all day, because they like to butt heads. They don't always represent peace, okay? They're less peaceful in that sense than are lambs of the sheep. Now, Christ is represented as a lamb of peace in places in the Scripture. And then he is represented as a man of war. Revelation, where he comes with a sword, his vesture dipped in blood, coming to put down all rebellion against him and his father. He was a man of peace most of the time when he was on the earth. But he went to war against the Pharisees. He went to war against the money changers in the temple. And there was no question of what he was trying to do and what he got done. So he did not always appear just as peaceful as a lamb. Now, here then, the sacrifice for sin is a goat... And the sacrifice for peace was two lambs. And the priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits for a wave offering. The two lambs were to be offered as a wave offering with the first fruits. Who again are the first fruits? Revelation 14, they're the 144,000. These two lambs were to be waved with them. So, these two lambs are to be waved. They were to be killed, of course. But they were to be waved with the first fruits as an offering to God and as a peace offering. They shall be holy to the eternal for the priest. So the two wave loaves and the two lambs waved with them were to represent holiness to the priest. Are we to be holy and without blemish? Are we to have white wedding garments without spot? Are we to be made of fine flour and to be the perfect, holy, righteous bride of Christ. Yes, we are to be holy to the eternal as the first fruits. We don't start out holy. It says there in Revelation 14 that those were, that the 144,000s were virgins, not, uh, well, let me go read it. 
Can't quite say it. Revelation 14. Verse 4. These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. Now, some of them are women. He includes a harlot as one of the first fruits in Hebrews 11. So, what do you mean these aren't to be defiled with women? Some of them, some of them maybe half of them, are women. But they're virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. Now, in second, I think it is Second Corinthians, in fact, which we'll get to shortly. We haven't gotten there yet in the series on Second Corinthians, or is it in First? I forget now. But Paul said he was going to present the Corinthian church as virgins to God. Corinth was the most morally decadent city around. They had all been defiled with all kinds of sexual sins. And yet, he was going to present them as chaste virgins to God. Now, how did they become virgins after they had been loose? Through the forgiveness of Christ, so that their sins were removed, and they were washed away and no longer counted. I have dealt with, especially in Miami and the Bahamas, back in the 60s, I dealt with women who had been literal hookers, who were coming to understand the knowledge of God. And they, in each and every case, there weren't many, but a few, had such a burden of guilt because of their lifestyle over their life, that it was very, very hard for them to feel forgiven and cleansed. I don't know at that time that I was armed with the knowledge that Paul disseminated there, that he was presenting the Corinthians as chaste, pure, clean virgins to God. I don't think I really understood that until 97 or so, or 8. But that's what we're to be. It doesn't matter what our sins have been. It doesn't matter what our lifestyle was. We are no longer defiled by whatever sins we had. We are clean and pure before God through the washing and the cleansing of the blood of the Lamb. That is the only way we can be spotless, is through the forgiveness and the removal of whatever our sins were. So it doesn't matter what you were, it's a matter of what you are going forward. So you forget the past, and you present yourself to God and ask Him to forgive you of any and every sin you still commit, wash them away so that you are clean. And he tells us in the book of Lamentations that every day we have a clean start. The sun goes down. 
It is the beginning of a new day. And the darkness of the preceding day is removed at dawn, and we have a new day, clean and fresh before God, having been forgiven of yesterday. So it isn't just from 30, 40, 50 years ago. It's yesterday that God cleans up and removes and gives you a fresh start to be perfect again, to be holy again. And within 30 minutes or 16 hours, we flub it up, most generally. But we get a new start every day, he says. What a beautiful thing. Why be negative? Why be down? Why be depressed? Any and everything from yesterday is gone. A new start. A freshness. A beauty. Sunrise. Up and at them. Go for it. New day. That sunrise should give us inspiration and hope. That a new day has dawned. And the darkness is gone. Overnight. Every day. Can we grasp that? Can we understand that? Can we internalize that? And live that? We get so bogged down sometimes with the past. Ours or somebody else's. And it prevents us from appreciating the day that we have. The freshness and the newness. That God has given. Doesn't he say, Paul, that the inner man is renewed day by day? Not year by year, Passover, but day by day. We are renewed. Renewed means cleansed, brought forward, given a new opportunity. Seize that new opportunity every day. And for the life of you, forget yesterday. Yours and everybody else's. Can we come to grips with that? Is that that difficult? No, it's the simplicity of Christ. Most of us probably take a shower or a bath most every day, don't we? Why? So we can be clean and fresh and not be offensive to everybody that comes within a whiff distance of us. And so we can feel clean instead of sweaty and grimy and dirty and filthy. So a physical bath and a spiritual bath are quite similar. When you pray to God in the evening and again in the morning for cleansing of your sins and your mistakes, then you're to get out of that prayer feeling clean. I invariably feel cleaner when I get out of the shower than before I got in. And I towel off and put on clean clothes, and I feel a lot better. Now, spiritually speaking, that prayer to God and asking for forgiveness should give us the same feeling. Why is it we pray for forgiveness and then drag our sins out of His blood and get discouraged that day over ours or somebody else's things that they did yesterday or 
ten years ago. Why do we drag our wagon and their wagon around? I've said this a hundred different ways, and I'll probably find another hundred different ways to say it. But somewhere along the line, we've got to get it. It's got to be. Because we are to be presented as chaste virgins, not defiled with the churches, the ways churches represent women and symbolism in the Bible, the ways of the religions of this world, gone, forgotten, clean before God. So here, same symbolism. Beaten fine, sweet savor, and peace offering. Now, I think we've established that this is speaking of the first fruits. We've always understood that, that these wave lows represented the first fruits. I don't think anybody here would argue with that. We've, we've been taught that for decades, and I think it's true. But let's continue here a little bit. And understand why he may have used a goat here for a sin offering, representing Christ, rather than a lamb of the sheep. And why the two lambs of the sheep are sacrificed as a peace offering. And the two wave loaves representing the first fruits, and I think that it may be true that we've understood that too, that it represented those who were in the Old Covenant and those of the New Covenant would be combined together, uh, two becoming one, 144,000. Because Hebrews 11 makes it clear that those from the Old Testament uh, will not proceed into the kingdom without us. So he combines both loaves or both covenants in the... 144,000. But he also has two lambs here as part of the peace offering. And the wave offering then would be both covenants or both groups that represent the fullness of the 144,000. And how then would the lambs fit in? How does that work? And what does it have to do with peace? Let's go to Matthew 24. Now, without going through the whole chapter, we know that the disciples asked Christ when these things would be. And he says, not one stone will be left upon another of the temple. It'll all be torn down, as was that temple that existed in that day physically. Uh, but they wanted to know specifically in verse 3, privately, apart from the multitude, what will be the sign of your coming unto the end of the world? End times, when this whole thing wraps up. He says, be careful not to be deceived. <coughs> many will come saying, I'm Christ, and will deceive many. Now, we know the beasts of the false prophet are going to come and deceive the whole world with a false religion and do miracles and signs and wonders that appear 
to be utter miracles from God. And the whole world is going to accept that, except the very elect, those who will be part of the 144,000. The rest of the world. Even these people in the independent media that I sometimes read articles from, who tell you to watch out for the beast and the false prophet, and they'll tell you don't take the sign in your forehead or your hand, and they are looking ahead trying to figure out who the beast is and who the false prophet is, and they even talk about how it may come as a hologram, as a fake return of Christ. And what interests me is that the very ones watching for this and saying don't do it are going to be taken in by it and accepted after all they've written about not doing so. It will be so grand, so great, so powerful that if it were possible, even the very elect would be deceived. That is a pretty powerful tool of Satan. We'll see that here in just a moment. Now, what does he say is going to happen? You'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. Does that sound familiar? Don't be troubled. These things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom... And there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in different places. Right now we're seeing an incredible increase in earthquakes and volcanic action in the ring of fire and around the world. We are seeing weather wars being waged and great floods that are occurring which will lead toward famine in the breadbasket of America right as we sit here today. And hurricane season is upon us. And all kinds of horrible things are in the offering, in the offing. We have Ebola, apparently, being brought across our southern border. They just captured over a hundred people from the area in Africa, Congo and right around it, Cameroons and so on, where Ebola is now live and well. It's coming into our country right now by Africans, other diseases by people from all over the world, not just Mexicans. And our president is selling us out left and right, wholesale, just as Jeremiah 50 and 51 say he will do. Now, you may have your MAGA hat hid somewhere, but if you accepted that Donald Trump was going to drain the swamp, you were deluded and deceived. Nobody is going to save this nation. We are the people of Ephraim, represented today by a Babylonian government, and we are going to go into captivity, famine, pestilence, disease, and war, per Ezekiel 5 and many other scriptures, and we are not going to be great again until the kingdom of God comes on this earth under the rule of Emmanuel the Christ and the 144,000. A lot of people thought, Trump's going to get her done. You know what he did? He immediately filled his cabinet 
and the White House with swamp rats. He pledged in his campaign to build a border and stop illegal immigration. He has not stopped nothing. He has not built a wall. He said he was going to start putting tariffs on the Mexican government if they wouldn't stop the illegal immigration. Now it has come out that they're saying, and I think he did or some of his people did, that they made a deal with the Mexican government months ago that if they would stop the illegal immigration, they wouldn't put any tariffs on them. Months ago. It hasn't even slowed down at the border if that deal was made months ago. It has increased since then. He has done nothing to stop the invasion from all over the world that is occurring across that border. And the Mexican government hasn't either, because it is to their advantage to let it continue to happen. Because the biggest business in Mexico is the export of drugs to America. And the government is in on the take. They're not about to slow it down or stop it. So what's all this falderall in the air? Only Christ is going to make Ephraim great again. And nobody in between. Donald Trump may have had some good motives, but I'm beginning to doubt it. He is just another puppet on a string who is doing what the puppeteers want done. And he is being set up to take the blame for the economic crash that is coming and cannot be stopped because God tells us in Zephaniah 1 and Isaiah 29 and other places that it's coming. Can't be stopped. But he can be blamed for it. And I think that he knows that if he doesn't play ball with them, he is going to die and so is his family. That's just the way things work. You remember Kennedy's? And Reagan? Yeah. That's the way it works. You play ball or you die. That's all there is to it. And it is a fact that he is, has his government full of swamp rats. He didn't get rid of them all. He didn't clean the swamp out of his own Oval Office, even. Now, I'm not bashing Republicans. The Democrats are even worse, if that's possible. None of them are any good. They're all liars and thieves and cheats, and there is no man you can trust in the government or woman. None of them. It is sick from the head to the foot, as Isaiah tells us. Totally sick. So let's not get on a political bandwagon of some kind. We're not supposed to be involved in them at all. We're ambassadors for Christ, not for the U.S. government. And we are seeing the beginnings of famines and pestilences and earthquakes in different places 
more and more and more as each day goes by. And now they're writing articles about our inner cities, particularly L.A., but Portland, Seattle, Chicago, where the homeless are beginning to gather by the hundreds and hundreds and thousands who have no place to live but on the street. And if they have a tent, they're lucky. Because we're headed down, and we're headed down fast. And then shall they deliver you, that's the disciples, up to be afflicted and shall kill you. That's another huge persecution that is going on by Gentile peoples and nations, is that all Christians and all white people have to die. And even some of the white Democrats are saying all Christians and white people have to die. That's kind of strange, them being one, but they're saying it. Maybe they're thinking in their mind with fingers crossed, all of them must die but me. <laughs> you know, who knows? So, there's a war against Christianity. Where's that come from? Satan. He hates anybody that takes the name of Christ, and he hates those who actually follow Christ even more. And then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. That's speaking of church people. And many false prophets shall rise and deceive many, and because iniquity shall bound, the love of many shall wax cold. I preached a pretty strong sermon yesterday admonishing us to quit accusing one another, to quit pointing the finger at each other, and to love one another. Now, we struggle like the rest of the church in the world struggles. Why? Because iniquity abounded in the church and it got spread apart and turned over to the predators. And we have fought among ourselves, one group against another group, one person against another person. And Satan has had a field day in the church of God. And that is why I had to admonish myself and you so strongly yesterday is because we have been affected by it, and we can't even get along with each other and forgive one another for some silly little stuff that we hang on to. Why? Because iniquity abounds, and the love of many has waxed cold. Let us regenerate the love through the Spirit of God and love one another as we're told to do. Can we do that? Can we overcome Satan and our nature and be meek and humble instead of self-righteous and egotistical and depending on the other guy to do the repenting? All of us were laid a sin. All of us have to repent. All of us have been affected by the lack of love bug. And we better get over it. 
But he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. Now this is a lead up to verse 14 and thereafter. We hadn't seen all these things we just read about when Herbert Armstrong was alive. We were together as a church. Um, yeah, there were volcanoes and earthquakes, but not like you see them today. We see famine about to sweep the earth because of floods and droughts. And we see the church broken into tens of thousands of pieces, really, and a great lack of love throughout. Now what's going to happen? When these things have transpired, not during Herbert Armstrong's life, but now, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness to all nations, and then shall the end come. Hasn't been done yet, or the end would have come. This is something that still has to be done. And it has to do with the abomination of desolation, which has not yet occurred. The Jews haven't built a temple. The church hasn't built a temple. The abomination can't be set up unless there's a temple. Got to be one built. Daniel says it'll stand in the temple. Second Thessalonians says it'll be in the temple. A man of sin in the church of God. He came, he destroyed. Now a new temple has to be built, and the abomination of desolation will be set up in it, after Jerusalem it also is built. And then, the preaching of the gospel will start. When you see that, stand in the holy place, whoso reads, let him understand. You are the only ones who have a chance of understanding. Because you know where Jerusalem and Zion are, and nobody else does. Then let them which be in the true Judea flee into the mountains. The Jerusalem over in the Middle East doesn't have any mountains around it to flee into. It's just a series of rolling hills is all it is. Besides that, we've got a plethora of scriptures that tell us to go to Zion. Now, if Zion is right outside the gates of Jerusalem, as people try to tell us, religionists, how do you flee from there to the mountains and wind up in Zion? You can't because they say it's just across the street is where Zion is. So if you flee from the true land of Judea and Jerusalem into the mountains, you have to get away. That means Zion is a ways away and in the mountains. Has to be. And it has to be below Mount Hermon, for the dews from Hermon come down upon Zion. They call it Cedar Mountain here. No, it's Mount Hermon. I've been up there, and I've seen the clouds go down into Zion. I've been to the Middle East, and it's 50, 60 miles away, what they call Mount Hermon. Stubby little hill with brush on it. And there ain't no way any cloud is going to go from there to Jerusalem, where they say Zion is. Don't get me started. I guess I started it. You didn't. That will be a time of haste. Now, he tells us not to flee in a 
panic mode in Isaiah 52 or in Malachi 4. But this flight, spoken of here, will be for your very life. You better not even have a sucking child or be eight months pregnant. It'll probably be even worse when this happens. And pray that it not be in bad weather or on the Sabbath. For then, at that time, will start the Great Tribulation, or the beginning of the three and a half years, 42 months, 1260 days, of preaching the gospel to the world as a witness. And then, when that is done, the end will come. Except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved alive, but for the elect's sake they will be. And if they say Christ is here or there, don't believe it. There will be false prophets, and they will show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Now I ask you, what is the gospel of the kingdom of God? Herbert Armstrong talked about that a lot. The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to all the world. What is the message of the gospel of the kingdom of God? As H.W.A. termed it, it's the good news of the world tomorrow. And I think that is appropriate. When the gospel is preached, it will be... Have you ever wondered what the two witnesses will preach? They're going to offer peace to the world. That's what they're going to offer. The gospel of the kingdom of God is a gospel of peace and safety and perfection and the rule of Christ for a thousand years on the earth. That's what the gospel of the kingdom is. The two witnesses aren't going to be out there just jabbing people all the time about how evil they are. They won't be telling them all the time what all their sins are and how evil this world is. That is not the gospel of the kingdom of God. That's the gospel of how bad things are. They will preach to the world the gospel of the kingdom. Now, let's tie that in with Leviticus 23. Christ is represented there as a goat, not a sheep. Now, Satan is represented as a goat as well in Leviticus 16. Christ is, is a goat who is killed for our sins. Satan is represented as a goat who is turned out into the wilderness bearing the guilt of our sins. Not the forgiveness of our sins, but the guilt for them. Who tempted us? Who tempted Adam and Eve? Satan, the devil. He bears the guilt along with them for their sins. Christ bears no guilt for sin. It says very clearly, Christ tempts no one. God does not tempt us with sin. It's our human nature and Satan the devil. So 
So there's no guilt on Christ for having tempted any man to sin or to cause any man to sin. That falls somewhere else. And it falls on Satan and the human nature that was unleashed when mankind committed idolatry and followed Satan instead of God. There's where the guilt goes. But here, in the end, I think there's a very good reason that Christ is represented here not as a lamb, but as a goat, just as he is on atonement, is the goat that was killed for our sins. And Satan, the goat that bears the guilt, and is sent into solitary confinement for it. Christ never goes into solitary confinement. When he comes, his 144,000 bride goes with him, and they will ever be with him. And the holy angels and the Father, he never is represented as being put in solitary confinement. Never. But I think he's represented as a goat here for a very good reason. The world is going to be offered a choice. They're going to have difficulty, to one degree or another, making that choice. Because the two and those in Zion that they represent are going to be saying, Christ is not here yet. He is coming. He, once you took over Jerusalem and the temple, He removed His people to Zion. And there, there is a light on a hill, Mount Zion, is a light to the world. And if you will follow this goat, you will be given peace and safety in a kingdom that Zion now represents, which is coming very soon. These people are here as an example of how things are going to be for the whole world if you follow this goat, Christ. whose blood covers the sin of the world. I always wondered, why does it say you can use a goat or a lamb? When a lamb seems to be the most logical in what everybody has done, basically, and what we have done. Speaking of the Lamb of God. So, if you represent Christ as one goat who can save you, and you represent Satan as the other goat who can kill you, you got to make a choice which goat. Now, here are the people in Zion that are living in peace and safety, and you're out here with wars and rumors of wars and dying. And you've accepted the beast and the false prophet, Satan the goat. You got the wrong goat. You got the wrong Savior. This goat represents God. This goat represents Satan. Now, does that make Leviticus 16 clear? Which goat are you going to follow? The one that represents these people in Zion, very soon now, is going to come back. And if you follow him, you'll go in peace into a thousand year reign of Christ. If you follow this one, you're going to die. 
Choose. Now, we got another proposition for you here. If you follow this goat, who shed his blood for you, you will have peace and safety. Now, the famine, the war on you in this city will stop. Because you chose God. Remember Jonah and Nineveh? Jonah came and said, repent and follow God and everything will be good. And Nineveh, ahead of Israel, repented and things got good. Until they unrepented (laughs) and then they got worse again. But it's an example for us. When the two witnesses go from city to city to the whole world, they will offer peace to those people in that city. And if they will accept that message, famine, pestilence, war in that city will stop. They will be given an option. If you follow this other one, as you've been doing, We're going to bring plagues on you. More plagues. Your water's going to turn to blood. You're going to have lice and fleas and frogs. Things are going to get worse for you. So what's it going to be? Yeah, you guys are crazy. I can buy and sell. I got the mark. Forget you. And then they will get plagues. They won't know which goat is which. Only the very elect will. The two lambs are part of the wave sheaf, right? That's the two witnesses who represent the 144,000. They are two lambs of God, of Christ, who in this analogy is represented by a goat, and the world doesn't know one goat from the other. They can't figure it out. But the two witnesses are bringing a message of peace from the 144,000 who are represented by Zion. And those in a place of safety and plenty and prosperity with a wall of fire around them to protect them throughout this whole thing. The first fruits and those two who represent them who are lambs offering a peace offering to the whole world. Let's go back to Matthew, I mean to Revelation 14 for a moment. I stopped there, but there's more to the story. And it fits what we're talking about here. Is it that late already? Okay, you have the first fruits. There was no guile found in their mouth, verse 5. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to them that dwell on the earth and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. So the two witnesses are going to be empowered by this angel to preach the gospel around the world. Saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to Him. This is the message. 
Fear God and give Him glory, for the hour of His judgment is come. And worship Him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. Worship the goat that represents the Father in heaven. And there followed another angel saying, Babylon has fallen, has fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. So there's a choice here between worshiping the God of heaven and earth and the God of Babylon who is going to fall. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image and receive his mark, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. So the two witnesses will represent the 144,000 who are the wave loaves and the two lambs. And they will offer peace for those who will worship the God of creation and tell them that if they worship Babylon, it's going to fall. And if you do that, you'll suffer the wrath of God. And they will represent that ahead of time for three and a half years to those people. And they will give them a sampling of the wrath of God through the plagues that they are empowered to do. So they're going to come offering an olive branch. If you will repent, you will have peace. If you don't repent, we're going to send plagues. And no one is going to repent. Now, when this is all done, the two lambs are indeed going to be offered. Having offered peace, they're going to be killed in war. Because the world will not have accepted their offer of peace and decides instead to make war on them. Now, up till that point, any time they've made war against them, fire has come out and burned them all up. But in that final war, they will be killed. And the world will say, we made the right choice. And they'll party. And then three and a half days later, their bodies will be raised up off the street. And the world is going to say, oh my God. But their God will fail them. And the real God will be coming. And their, oh my God, is going to be turned around. And after then, they die in the war that they were told would come upon them if they did not obey God. They'll come up in the great white throne judgment. But those who live through are going to see Christ coming with His bride set up the new Jerusalem with the Father and rule the earth, and they're going to see the 144,000 who they saw in Zion during that three and a half years, 
and they're going to see the two witnesses there with them who preached to them for that three and a half years. And they're going to say, I think we picked the wrong goat. Now it's time to repent and serve the God of heaven and earth. And then the offering of peace will be fulfilled as represented by the 144,000 and their two representatives, the first fruits of the day of Pentecost.